You're listening to The Constitutionalist. I'm your co-host, Shane Leary, a graduate student at Baylor University, and each week I sit down with my professor and the founder and editor of The Constitutionalist, Dr. Benjamin Kleinerman, to discuss the constitutional implications of political developments and the ideas surrounding the Constitution itself. I think Hamilton, at least, is very clear uh, in The Federalist just how powerful the government will have to be. Uh, now, I think for Hamilton, it's an understanding. It's all within the Constitution. Uh, but it is a very powerful Constitution. Uh, so Federalist 23, he talks about how you can't impose any constitutional shackles upon the power to defend. Okay, today we have with us Dr. Benjamin Slomsky, a longtime friend of the Constitutionalist. Ben is an assistant professor of political science and pre-law advisor at Purdue University, Fort Wayne, where he teaches classes on a range of topics, mostly focusing on constitutional law, the judiciary, and American politics more broadly. He's published in Politics and the Life Sciences, as well as the civic education blog, constitutingamerica.org, and of course, our very own constitutionalist blog. Ben is a longtime friend. He earned his doctorate from Baylor University, I actually stayed with him in the fall of uh, 2019 when I was a a visiting student uh, as an applicant. Um, And his dissertation, which was excellent, uh, focused on war powers and in particular the role of the court in weighing in on the constitutionality of presidents exercising war powers. So, Ben, great to have you on. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me, Shane. I'm really excited to be here. Of course. Well, so uh, I have some questions for you, obviously, but before we get into the meat of your area of expertise, I'm going to pass it off to Dr. Kleinerman for our opening guest question. Okay. Um, thanks for being on, Ben. It's, it's great to great to see you. Great to uh, hear from you. The I guess you're not on the front lines. Um, I feel like I have to break years. away at some point. I just you know, <laughs> make the front line jokes every time. Ben, for your awareness, I, I don't know if you've listened, but I've been... Uh, I started off with a joke with Charles Zug about him being like in the trenches or on the front lines of um, the fight for constitutional education. And now I've, uh, Dr. Kleinerman insists I do it with every guest. So, <laughs> Well, geographically, Fort Wayne is not on the front line of anything. So except <laughs> the Michigan-Ohio border. So. But you it is a fort, though. It's a Fort yeah, Wayne. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's cool. It hasn't been the front lines, though, for a couple hundred so years. Maybe, maybe you're most deserving, actually, of that joke, but uh, you're certainly in the trenches. <laughs> All right. Um, so the, the question I have, favorite president, but then also favorite Supreme Court justice, favorite member of Congress, either Senate. Mm. And this isn't living or dead, you know, so... Um, it's supposed to be broadly speaking constitutionalism. So we ask about all three of them. The first two are easy. Uh, the president is an easy uh, Lincoln, obviously. That okay, I think our first Lincoln. Lincoln, really. Uh, Lincoln gives us the most serious articulation of constitutional and political thought as a president. Uh, Supreme Court justice is tough only because there'd be a couple contenders. But I think right now I'd have to go with Joseph Storm. Uh, and this might come up a little bit more later, uh, that the, the easy answer before would have been John Marshall. Uh, but the more I've been studying both Marshall and Story, especially on war powers, I found that I think Story actually has uh, more depth in his constitutional thinking than Marshall. And so I really appreciate what Joseph Story does for an independent presidency as well. 
Congress is a really, really tough one. Uh, I like to say that, and I teach American politics, but I only teach two branches. I teach the presidency and the courts. And Congress, I taught once uh, as a non-expert, but I very much do almost nothing with Congress. Uh, and so I don't want to name someone by accident uh, who ends up not be, <laughs> having a dark mark that I'm not aware of. Uh, I mean, there there's names that come to mind. Uh, I think Daniel Webster is a good political orator, but I can't really speak to him as a member of Congress. Uh, Henry Clay, I'm honestly not that impressed with because I think Really? Again, yeah, I, well, I think part of the problem of the Whigs is their view on the presidents, that they see the president as subordinate to Congress in some way. They don't understand uh, the need for an independent presidency. Uh, so I'm, I might cheat uh, because I don't know a whole lot about what he did as a senator. Uh, but I'll go with Governor Morris, who mm. I think is one of, if not the hero, one of the heroes of the Constitutional Convention. Uh and then serves as a senator in the later on in the U.S. Senate. Uh, and so without knowing enough, for all I know, he does little to nothing in the Senate. Uh, I at least feel like I can trust Governor Morris, whereas normally I think members of Congress are meant to disappoint you, and probably most of them have been disappointed. <laughs> I like the Lincoln. I think I had you on just so you'd say someone, someone would finally <laughs> say Lincoln. <laughs> um yeah, Morris is funny. I, I, I mean, he's really the, he really is the hero of the Constitution Convention. I didn't know you thought that then. That's, that's yeah, I, yeah. I think um, right. Morris, James Wilson. I, th I think Hamilton has one uh, key moment. I'm a big Hamilton fan, but he's not there for most of it, and so someone else has to do it. Do you know the? Do, do you know the article by um, William Riker, the Rational Choice guy? I don't think it's so. An, no. It's a, it's a really interesting. It's a, it's a, um, in the APSR probably 30, 40 years ago. Um, and it was when he was the president of the APSA. He writes like, and it's on Governor Morris and the, what is it called? The Herostetics of Constitution Making. The way that Morris manipulated the convention into a strong presidency by making it about states' rights. It's actually, it's a really fascinating article. Um, so anyway, it um, makes the best case for Morris as really the, the kingpin. The, the sort of, the, he, he understood the game at a much deeper level than anyone else did. So. Interesting. Um, oh, cool. I'm surprised you discounted Henry Clay so easily. Yeah, I think in some ways, I think there's a lot that's admirable about Henry Clay, but I think the presidency is a real blind spot for him, mm. probably because of Jackson. I think Lincoln's eulogy of Henry Clay is very interesting that because Henry Clay is supposedly Lincoln's beau ideal of a statesman, and on its surface, it's a praise of Henry Clay. Uh, but I think you read it closely, uh, Lincoln's critical of Clay in some sense, mm. that maybe sort of the way he functioned as a statesman isn't actually ideal. And then, of course, I would argue at least Lincoln governs as a president in a very different way than the Whig ideal. I know some have tried to argue that Lincoln as president is still a conventional Whig, uh, but that's kind of a hard sell for me, that Lincoln seems much more like a classic Federalist president in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I. What's that? Is it 
I, I do think the take on Lincoln that he's a simply awake is misguided, is mistaken. But I, I wonder, can't you be for a powerful constitutional president and against Jackson? You know, um, isn't that I, yeah. sort of the David Nichols position? Yeah, absolutely. I just, I'm, I don't know these debates well enough, but as far as I know, I just don't know if anyone really does it at that point. No. I mean, I think the big problem of Jackson, I think Jim Caesar brings this out in some places, is that Jackson's a powerful president, but it's always for negative purposes, that it's yeah. presidential independence to limit the national government and return power to the states. So sort of paradoxically, yeah. it's it's a strong president to weaken the government. Yeah. I wonder if that's yeah. exactly what we need today. Yeah. <laughs> In any case, well, why don't we, um, why don't we maybe get into into the meat of, of kind of how you've been thinking about this, and 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 I'd like to hear a little bit about your dissertation, maybe. But so, um, I guess kind of to start, Ben, you know, I, I just want to ask, like, how broadly, how should we understand the relationship between uh, the court and the presidency, um, and in particular, the court's role in determining the constitutionality of of you know presidential actions. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot, obviously. Uh, I wrote my dissertation, as you mentioned, the topic of presidential war powers and Supreme Court decisions, and I'm now working uh, slowly but surely on turning that into a book. And I also, uh, I taught a course this whole semester that's just wrapping up now, uh, focused pretty much on the Constitution and national security, and especially on executive power. Uh, So I've been thinking a lot about these questions. And Sort of my take, at least, uh, which I mentioned earlier that uh, I'm a big Hamilton fan, and I think Hamilton's constitutionalism is key here. Uh, Sort of my take, which I think is arguing at least an underappreciated position, uh, is that the Constitution requires both a strong independent presidency and a strong independent judiciary to check the presidency and evaluate it. Uh, I think there's a lot of scholarship arguing for the strong presidency, and there's a lot of strong court scholarship, uh, but there's not a lot putting those two together. Uh, So for me, my understanding is the Constitution generally establishes a strong, independent executive who's energetic to carry out the law, and that means both uh, when it comes to foreign affairs and defending the nation and domestically. Uh, But that also requires an independent judiciary that can evaluate presidential actions and their constitutionality, Uh, including during the war. I'm really interested in the war powers question, because I think the standard interpretation is if the president's strong anywhere, uh, it's war. Uh, The Constitution clearly does give the president the power to be commander in chief in Article 2. And there's a general understanding, even among the critics of executive power, that the president has more war powers than perhaps anything else. It's just, where do you draw the line? Some would still want Congress to be in control of war as opposed to the president. Uh, But war is typically taken to be sort of the area where the president might have the most constitutional power. And so there's an assumption that if there's anywhere where the courts might have to be most deferential. It's war. And sort of what I want to argue in my reading a lot of Supreme Court cases is that definitely happens in some cases. Uh, There's definitely some justices who take the view of 
it's war. We have to be hands off. We can't get involved. Uh, but I think for the most part, the court's actually been fairly active in policing the president's war powers. Uh, but they're not simply saying the president can't do it uh, because they recognize there is broad presidential power, especially over war. But they still recognize there's other constitutional limits that get in the way. And so a lot of what the court does is balancing between the president's own independent power that he needs to have to fight war, uh, but also legitimate constitutional restrictions that apply. So I have a question for you, Ben. The, so I, under, I, I sort of like the argument about a strong, all three branches being strong, Congress, the, the president, and the judiciary. Um, but when it comes down to it, the thing that, I mean... Ultimately, isn't aren't you saying that the judiciary should decide on the president's power? So, in other words, doesn't that and doesn't that, in a way, make the judiciary stronger than the president? That is, so when when it's a conflict over whether the president has power under the Constitution to do something, it's the Supreme Court adjudicating that that conflict. So, yeah, I mean, I would say that I'm still working through this myself, uh, but I would say. My, my understanding is a type of departmentalism, but it's definitely a strange one, uh, or at least not the most conventional one. Uh, that I think I have to reject the sort of the Jefferson-Jackson view of departmentalism, that essentially each separate branch gets to determine the Constitution for itself and act on that interpretation. Uh, that I think if you push Jefferson or Jackson to the extreme, uh, there's a sort of incoherence there that... Both of them say as president, they get to decide their interpretation of the Constitution when exercising their executive power, and they can't be bound by the other branches. But I think that could lead to a type of constitutional anarchy, where you have essentially the three branches doing their own thing. And then there's a question of, can any of them really constrain the other, uh, to simplify it a little bit? Whereas I think there's a lot more to Lincoln's position, uh, especially he spells out in the speech against the Dred Scott decision, uh, where he's clear uh, that he thinks the Dred Scott decision is as bad of a decision as you can get, uh, but it is binding in that particular legal case. It's unfortunate and it's terrible, but Dred Scott, unfortunately, he had his day before the Supreme Court and he has to accept the role. Uh, but whether or not it's accepted as a constitutional precedent uh, depends upon a whole host of factors. Uh, is it unanimous? Has it been? Uh, is there apparent partisan bias? Uh, is it based on historical facts that are really true or not? Uh, lacking some of those, has it come up again and again through the years and been reaffirmed? Uh, if you think about it, what Lincoln's saying is ultimately the American people have to decide whether or not it's a constitutional precedent. Uh, and basically it comes down to, do we ultimately think the court got it right? Uh, because I don't want to go as far as the judicial supremacists, uh, that there certainly is another branch that would say the court has to be supreme and their decisions are binding. And I see the danger there too, that the court can get it wrong. And so maybe we shouldn't necessarily give the court the final say all the time. Uh, so in practical terms, uh, what do I think this means? Uh, sort of my version of departmentalism, uh, sort of this Lincolnian departmentalism as I interpret it, uh, requires an interplay of the three branches, where there are areas where the court can bind the president, 
Uh, but it has to be in particular legal cases. Uh, we can't forget here. Uh, this isn't France. Uh, France, you can have hypothetical review. Where uh, occasionally you can get a case where the government can bring a hypothetical question to the constitutional court. Uh, would this be constitutional or not? And the court gets to speak beforehand. Uh, but our Supreme Court can't do that. Uh, they can only rule on particular legal cases that have a legal question. Uh, the, the parties have to have standing to sue, meaning there has to be a concrete, particularized injury that can be remedied through law. And it has to work its way up through the legal process. Uh, and then after that, don't forget, too, uh, the Supreme Court has to grant certiorari, which happens in what, like two to three percent of cases? Uh, the percentage varies a lot. Uh, and so it's very limited. Uh, and even then, I think the court is final only in that particular case. They bind the president in that particular case. Uh, whether or not that continues to be the president depends upon how the president responds. Uh, the president could choose to act differently in a different case. But then if a case comes up again, the court could invalidate it. And then Congress could decide to impeach the president or resolve the controversy in some other way. Uh, so the court is only definitive in that case. Uh, and where we go from there, I think, ultimately depends upon how the three branches settle it in the end. Uh, but you wanted to jump in, I think, Ben. Well, yeah, I was going to – what about Merriman? I mean – I, I probably asked you this before. Probably asked it at your dissertation defense, if I knowing my. But I mean, Merriman is the decision. Just <laughs> rather than being in too insider pop, but baseball about this, Merriman is the decision that Lincoln could not suspend the writ of habeas corpus, and that he had to free one of the Southern sympathizers. Um, John Merriman, who'd been imprisoned after the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. He, wasn't he obligated to follow the Supreme Court's decision? I mean, even Lincoln's own principles, as you just articulated, he could say, well, not generally, but I get a free Merriman. But he didn't. He doesn't free Merriman. So. Yeah, I think because Lincoln is – the thing I like about Lincoln, uh, I like teaching Lincoln in any class, uh, especially because a lot of what I like to do with my students is teach them to read on a deeper level. And the thing I love about Lincoln is I think he's the most – careful reader of texts we've ever had as a president. And so may maybe that means he's reading it at a level that the average American wouldn't read it. But I think uh, my take on Merriman uh, is that Lincoln's reading the decision very carefully and Tawny never orders him to do anything at all. Uh, so there, there's a couple uh, sort of challenges I put out there to the conventional understanding of Merriman. Uh, first of all, I don't think it's a Supreme Court decision. Uh, it's unclear to me. It's debated exactly what it is. Uh, but the one thing it's clear to me it isn't is a Supreme Court decision. Uh, so John Merriman, this Confederate sympathizer who'd been ripping up railroads and training troops for the, the Maryland militia in case they seceded, uh, he files for habeas corpus once he's arrested by the military. And he files it to Roger Taney, who's the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, and they file the writ at, uh, not to get too inside baseball, but they file it at the Supreme Court. Uh, Tawny responds from Baltimore in Maryland, where he's the circuit judge. Now, it's not entirely clear. Uh, this gets really debated 
a bunch of us sort of law, Civil War law nerds uh, get really heated over this really intricate question. Uh, it's not clear if Tawney is deciding the case as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court with a special jurisdiction over habeas corpus, or if he's hearing it as a circuit court judge, writing circuit. But regardless, the one thing it is not, it's not the Supreme Court of the United States, because it's not all the justices making a ruling together. Uh, but more importantly for my argument, it's basically just an advisory opinion. If you read it closely, Tani goes through the issue. Tani says, here's my opinion. Only Congress can suspend habeas corpus, not the president. Therefore, Lincoln's violated the Constitution. And what he says at the very end now is, now I'll have my opinion filed with the circuit court. I'll have it sent to the president. Uh, hopefully he'll read it. And then he will have to decide what to do as president. Uh, but he never orders Merriman released. He never gives a legal order saying Merriman must go free. Uh, and so I think Lincoln reading it realizes it doesn't tell him to do anything. Uh, it's just a suggestion in some ways. Now, my argument, and I do recognize, I have the convenience of a hypothetical that Lincoln's dead. We don't know what he would do. Uh, but I think Lincoln would be consistent uh, because I think Lincoln is incredibly consistent as president. Uh, that if Tawney had ordered Merriman released, I think what Lincoln would have had to have done uh, to be consistent with his argument against Dred Scott uh, would be to say, okay, Tawney's ruling is binding in that case. Merriman must go free. And then I think immediately after you free him, you arrest him again. And then you let the process go again. Uh, and then ultimately, that right, it only, it's laughable to wait, but it was only binding to that case. And so, it has nothing to say about any other case. And in some ways, it ultimately does depend upon Congress. Uh, as much as I want to focus only on two of the branches, I recognize that when you do get a presidential judicial dispute, in some ways, Congress does get to settle it in many ways. So um, have you written on that? Have you written on that that take on Merriman? That's a really interesting take. Does anyone else? That, that's a, you should. You should write on that. We have a research I, note. I, a few. In... Okay. Good to know. Uh, <laughs> a, a few a few law professors, like Michael Stokes Paulson, I think has, although I think he takes Lincoln more as defined taunt, which I disagree on. Uh, yeah, he goes, he talks thing. about Lincoln creating his own, like, constitution. That, that's a crazy piece. Um, but. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting take. I I think you've told me that before. Yeah, that that's I think the right. I mean, because when I think about it, I was thinking about your your take. Because Shane was asking me what your take is on these things and how it compares to my take on these things, and I said, well, one way of thinking about it is thinking about the difference between like um, Jackson's descent in Korematsu and Murphy's descent in Korematsu, where Murphy wants the Supreme Court actually to decide the question. Jackson says, all we can decide is decide the legality and then let the executive decide. So in a way, your take on Merriman is, is akin to Jackson's take in a certain sense, you know, um, right? right? In a way, but I think it's different ultimately uh, because I'm actually uh, in the dissertation slash book, I'm pretty critical of 
uh, Jackson's dissent in Korematsu. Uh, so the way I understand uh, Justice Robert Jackson's dissent, uh, it's really weird to me. Uh, so Korematsu v. United States, the infamous now only recently overruled decision uh, upholding the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II as constitutional. Uh, so the really weird thing to me is everyone hates Korematsu. Everyone agrees it's wrongly decided. Uh, but the dissent everyone quotes and cites is Jackson's dissent, not Murphy's. Uh, but Jackson's dissent, the way I read it, basically says, well, the military wasn't wrong. Uh, they did have to intern Japanese Americans. It was necessary, but still unconstitutional. Uh, so mm -hmm. Jackson's argument to me is a statement that the military acts outside of the Constitution. Uh, the military acts based on necessity. Uh, something like a Lockean extra-constitutional prerogative power to violate the Constitution when necessary. And they did what they had to do. But now that the crisis is ending, it's our job as judges to reassert the rule of law. Uh, so this does not sit around as a precedent that can be used in the future. I don't think that's Lincoln's position, uh, because I think Lincoln's very careful to avoid a prerogative position. Uh, I read Lincoln as a non-prerogative president uh, who always defends himself as acting within the bounds of the Constitution. Now, it's tricky because Lincoln understands constitutional powers to vary in their application. Uh, you can do things in one situation that would be unconstitutional in another, depending on the circumstances. But for him, it has to be constitutional if the executive can act. Uh, so I think Lincoln's position against Taney in Merriment would be, I did the right thing. Taney made the wrong decision, uh, that Taney didn't understand the Constitution correctly. But because it is a judicial ruling, if Taney had ordered him to release Merriment, then I'm still bound to release him in that case. I'm still bound to comply with the ruling. But again, that doesn't necessarily bind him in future cases. Uh, because the judicial power is only binding in that particular legal case. Uh, so I would frame it as more of a question of where does the power extend to? Uh, that the executive power extends to wherever the law is executed. The judicial power extends to always interpreting the law and applying it in particular legal cases. Couldn't we, isn't it, as much, though, a separation of powers question in the sense that the Constitution means different things to different branches at different times, or even the same, even different things to different branches at the same time. And so Lincoln's understanding of what was required in the Civil War was a constitutional position. He was acting from what he understood to be his constitutional authority. But so, too, you could say Taney understood him himself as acting according to his constitutional authority. It's just they have different understandings as to what that means because they have different responsibilities. Tani's responsibility is to the the law and what the law requires. Lincoln's responsibility is in the first place to security and what security requires. So I think, I mean, I actually think Tani's reading of, of – of Enex, I think Tony actually. I agree with his opinion in, in Merriman. I mean, I, I agree. I like the fact that if it's true, I, I can't remember, but it's, it's, you seem confident it's true that he didn't order Lincoln to release him. But as a constitutional question, 
everyone, including Story, who you mentioned before, had agreed that the Supreme Court, that the Congress is the one who can suspend the writ of habeas corpus. So, I mean, Lincoln thought it so differently because Lincoln's an ex- a president, you know. So yeah, I, I just summed up. Uh, so I mentioned this in the dissertation. Lincoln quotes Story. And this creates a problem, or uh, not Lincoln, Tawny quote story. This creates a problem for me yeah. because I want Story and Lincoln to be consistent. Uh, but I think they're at, if you, I think Story's comments on this and his commentaries on the Constitution are actually very ambiguous. Uh, I'm not willing to stake my reputation on it because it might just be Lincoln and Story disagree. But I think there's a plausible reading. We should Story's, have had Bridget on too. <laughs> yeah, there's a plausible reading here where. Uh, Story is not speaking absolutely at all times. Uh, and that's sort of my larger point uh, with the, the Tawny Lincoln debate is how do we read the Constitution? Uh, so I'm not entirely actually sympathetic to the, the different perspectives. Argument. I think for the executive, I am that the president has to act as executive and think as executive. I actually think justices, when evaluating the powers of the other branches, I think they're actually required when evaluating executive powers to think like the executive because they're trying to understand, is this a presidential power? And the same for Congress. They have to they actually have to adopt the legislative or the executive perspective to understand how they can act under the Constitution. I think the bigger problem is actually a problem of how you understand the Constitution. Uh, And if you want to doctor it up like I do and make it sound fancy. Uh, I make it a political philosophy problem. Uh, we're actually, I argue that Tani is a Kantian, uh, <laughs> that Tani's following Immanuel Kant, and he reads the Constitution as a categorical imperative, that constitutional powers are absolute. Uh, they are always applied in the same way. And actually, I think Tani does this. Uh, there's a case in the 1840s uh, I won't get too much into this, but Fleming v. Page, I, and it's kind of a funny case. It's after the Mexican-American War. Uh, basically, some Mexican businessmen uh, who want to get out of paying tariffs uh, claim that they are now American citizens uh, and that the U.S. conquered their part of Mexico uh, during the Mexican-American War. And so now they don't have to pay tariffs. Uh, Tony and the court say no. Uh, but the most interesting thing there uh, Tani tries to define comprehensively what the executive power is in Article 2 and what the commander-in-chief power is. He says that he lists all the things the commander-in-chief can do, and they're things like directing the movement of troops, directing them during combat, and not acquiring territory. His ruling is the president can't add territory through conquest during war. Uh, but Tawny thinks he can define comprehensively everything the commander-in-chief can do. And in Merriman, uh, he says the president has only the enumerated powers listed in Article 2. Uh, so for him, the president only has the powers specifically listed in Article 2 of the Constitution. Uh, so Tawny, I think, reads the executive powers as these limited enumerated things that are always unchanging and forever fixed. Uh, Whereas Lincoln, I try to say, is much more of an Aristotelian, uh, that natural justice changes and is flexible. Uh, And that's me putting my own sort of way of wrapping it with a nice bow in there. But I think Lincoln is clear on the flexibility thing, uh, that the Constitution changes in its application over time. 
that measures that might be unconstitutional in one case are constitutional in another, uh, depending upon circumstances. The Constitution is the same everywhere and always, but constitutional powers can be applied in different ways. Uh, so habeas corpus is the big one. Uh, that the way I read Lincoln, uh, Lincoln is essentially saying, well, in other cases, maybe Congress can suspend habeas corpus. But in the Civil War, when Congress was not in session and the Confederacy was trying to prevent them from getting into session, this was an executive power in that case. Uh, so in other words, the suspension clause is flexible. Sometimes it's Congress's power, sometimes it's the executive's, but it depends uh, based upon what the circumstances are. Whereas Tani wants to say it's always Congress 100% of the time. I'd like to maybe latch on to something here. I mean, so you, I mean, what, one of the things that's that's coming out here is 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 your interpretation, which I, I'm sympathetic to, and I'm certainly sympathetic to the 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 point that we can't perfectly enumerate what presidents are able to do or what they'll have to do. Um, but you've admitted that I mean, this is a very complicated interpretation, and that and that Lincoln, and being such a close reader, and being you know one of the maybe let's say wiser or more prudent presidents we've had. Uh, takes a very complicated view of constitutionality. This is, as we've talked about earlier uh, in earlier episodes of The Constitutionalist, this is an early concern of Madison's that if you take this sort of this broader or more, um, I don't want to say ethereal, but, you know, uh, uh, let's say flexible view of executive power, it's going to end up being too difficult for the American people to understand. Um, and, and that seems to be a problem maybe in the sense that, you know, we want to retain constitutional reverence. Uh, we want to retain uh, reverence among the people, which is who the Constitution is ultimately for, uh, that there is a certain structure, that, that a certain dependable and predictable structure to our politics. Um, and, and you know, to, to love something, to revere it, I think you have to know it in some way. So is there a concern that presidents, you know, maybe they should exercise a certain prudence in saying, well, like, Maybe that's just too complicated for the people. Or I don't. What do you think about that? What do you think about Madison's concern there, uh, Quinerman? You mentioned this before in a, in a letter between Madison and Hamilton early on. Oh, yeah, in the Pacific Selvidius debates, Madison Madison's concern that Hamilton's reading of um, Article Two will get end up meaning the people don't know what the Constitution means. It becomes too too. If it becomes too flexible, it's no longer meaningful as a constitution. I guess my question is, was his worst nightmare Ben Slomsky? <laughs> yeah, well, I think my response to Madison would be that Madison didn't uh, read The Federalist enough. He wasn't familiar enough with The Federalist. Uh, I mean, it's funny, though. Uh, this is uh, I've got a bunch of side projects, which is why everything I'm working on takes forever to get out, because I've just got too many ideas I'm trying to bring to fruition. But uh, one of my side projects is to look more at separation of powers in the Federalists. And I think there's actually an argument here uh, that maybe explains later developments in the 1790s, uh, that Madison is just either not on the same page with Hamilton's essays in the Federalists, uh, or just maybe uh, is uh, ignoring them in some degree. Uh, that I think Hamilton, at least, is very clear uh, in the Federalists. 
just how powerful the government will have to be. Uh, now, I think for Hamilton, it's an understanding. It's all within the Constitution. Uh, but it is a very powerful Constitution. Uh, so Federalist 23, he talks about how you can't impose any constitutional shackles upon the power to defend the nation. Uh, given that the circumstances that threaten a nation are infinite, you can't put any clear constitutional restrictions on that. And I think that essay is unclear whether or not he's talking about Congress or the president. Uh, but I think if you look into his argument, it's pretty clearly tipping the scales toward the president as defender of the nation. And then Federalist 70 is pretty explicit. A leading character in the definition of good government is energy in the executive. Uh, you cannot have a good government without an energetic executive, both for executing the law when it comes to defending against foreign attacks, but also just the day-to-day -day steady administration of ordinary laws and protecting individual rights. Uh, he says a good government, uh, something like no matter how good it is in theory, is a bad government without its energetic executive. Uh, so I think Hamilton is very clear right from at least the Federalists that you're going to have to have a strong independent executive, and that means not putting too many constitutional limitations, uh, not hamstringing the president. That if Article 2 is too specific and precise, that means you're potentially limiting the president in a future case that you haven't anticipated. Whereas yeah, instead you go, – go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Finish what you're I say, finish your I just thought. say, whereas you've got to leave it, leave it broad uh, so that the president can act in whatever circumstances might occur. Now, that doesn't mean, for me at least, that the president can do anything. Uh, the president still has to act as an executive and executing the law. Uh, the president can't use this as an excuse to usurp legislative power. But it is a really broad grant of executive power that I think Madison's uncomfortable with. But I would argue that he's arguing against the, the text of Article 2, and that's why he's making the losing argument. So, the, actually, the, there's a guy here at um, Civitas this year who's – he presented a paper on Publius's split personality, the extent to which you can already see in the Federalist Papers – a difference between Madison and Hamilton, um, which I generally buy. I actually don't understand. I mean, I guess to like certain Claire monsters, a lot rides, it seems, on it not being a split personality. But I, I really don't understand how you don't conclude that they're making diff somewhat different arguments in the, in the, as Publius. But well, in terms of the. Oh, I was just saying, it's hard, it's hard too that I would love for there to be one Publius and one coherent work. But you've also got to keep in mind there, there's a split personality with the Constitutional Convention and even Hamilton yeah. and Madison with themselves at the convention. Uh, that there's more – it's not just two personalities. There's four or five personalities in here when you add in their convention arguments. But I was – I wonder though, to come back to the question of um, presidential power in relation to judicial power, I mean I'm fully on board – in general, with your argument regarding Hamilton and the need for a strong president that can do a number of different things um, that aren't listed in Article Two, but you—it seems like you're you're imagining judges to then decide when the president has gone too far, and I just 
the idea of judges making those decisions strikes me as bizarre. (laughs) Like judges are about the furthest from a battlefield or from from politics as possible. I mean, maybe Congress can make those decisions. I don't trust that either, but judges, I don't. Well, not all the time. We're not, we're not talking about abstract review of hypothetical questions. We're not talking about general military policy questions. We're talking specifically about, constitutional legal questions where individual rights are implicated. Uh, And so this is where typically where is the court most involved in war policy? Uh, Habeas corpus cases and executive detention cases uh, where individuals have been detained and arrested, uh, especially not always, but especially when it's U.S. citizens, uh, because there's also a judicial question involved there as well. And that's not always to say the president loses. Sometimes the president wins these cases. Uh, but when we're talking about detention of individuals, uh, this is a really interesting question that I think has to require the judiciary uh, because it's almost a split responsibility. Uh, detention is partially executive because it's the executive who is arresting and detaining the individuals. But it's also partially judiciary, because where normally does detention happen? 99% of the time, uh, detention happens through ordinary law enforcement, typically through local state and local police agencies. And an individual is put in a normal jail and then goes before a judge and the criminal justice process and a jury uh, to determine the outcome of that detention. But military detention is different in that it's the same sort of thing, but on the military level. But that same criminal justice process isn't there. And so what the courts try doing is ensuring there's still a fair legal process, that that judicial element is there, but often without the jury element. Uh, and so this is why I'm sure we'll have to get into the war on terror at some point, because I think we have sort of very different views of those cases. I was about to ask you. So. <laughs> yeah, I think th- this um, is what the Bush administration never saw, that the courts had to be involved in the detention of enemy combatants. Well, so um, I, I think, I mean, the case that, that stands out most for me as following from, I think, your argument would be O'Connor's argument in Hamdi, right? I mean, um that is that the the courts can decide this question in a way that and can intervene in Hamdi in a way that the dissent in that decision doesn't think it can intervene. Yeah. Um, so that, I think you like. I mean, Scalia calls a, O'Connor's um, decision in Hamdi the Mister Fix It mentality. Like she's going to figure out how to fix the problem. But do you want to give some, you like her decision? Do you want to give some brief background on that case just for the listener? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so Hamdi is the decision. It's a war on terror case. One of the one of the first war on terror cases. Um, and there's an American citizen who's been captured in um, Iraq and um, is suspected to be a terrorist. Well, it, it pretty clearly a terrorist. And the question is, does he have legal processes or is he owed legal processes because he's an American citizen? And the court finds that he's sort of owed legal processes. That is, he's 
not given the full a full right to trial because there's a kind of deference to executive needs, but he's also not allowed simply to be imprisoned and taken away according to what the executive requires. And O'Connor creates her own legal code that will solve the the problem, I think. Right. Am I getting that right, Ben? Yeah, yeah I, I think that's generally yeah, a good way to classify it. I was going to say, I was really tempted. Uh, I thought about uh, when you asked her favorite Supreme Court justice, I thought about uh, naming the the recently departed Justice O'Connor. Because uh, I know the, the O'Connor love can be controversial in some circles. Uh, that was and I got, that was the favorite. Uh, you Nichols students, all you Nichols yeah. students, you love O'Connor. O'Connor was the I, favorite I don't, for, for our last guest, uh, Hans Zeigner. I Yeah. I can't say I agree with all of her decisions, but I think especially on separation of powers, I think she's very good. Uh, and it's interesting. There's a lot of O'Connor-Scalia splits uh, where I personally think that O'Connor just has the better argument. Uh, Oregon v. Smith, the religious liberty case, mm-hmm. I think O'Connor's mm-hmm. concurrence there is much better. Uh, Gonzalez v. Reich, a Commerce Clause case and uh, federal marijuana law, I think O'Connor makes a strong argument against Scalia there. And then Hamdi, especially. Uh, so Hamdi's really interesting because – this is actually uh, one of the possible questions uh, for my final in this law and national security class is to put Hamdi in conversation with the earlier cases. Because uh, I think Scalia is basically just channeling the ghost of Tawny Bear. Uh, Scalia's argument is Hamdi's a U.S. citizen. He's being detained by the president. Uh, the only options are either suspend habeas corpus or charge him with treason. And only Congress can suspend habeas corpus, which is Tawny's position, and Congress hasn't done that. And so absent charging him with treason, he's got to go free. Uh, Whereas I think O'Connor's opinion is balancing, uh, where she recognizes the president does have power uh, to detain the enemy combatants in this case. Uh, She doesn't touch the question of, does the president have independent constitutional power? Uh, Because she doesn't have to. Uh, Congress authorized the use of military force and said the president can use all necessary force against those organizations responsible for September 11th and organizations connected to those. Uh, Hamdi was suspected of being allied with the Taliban unit. And O'Connor's reasoning, which I think is pretty solid, is that part of the necessary force includes detention. Uh, that if you win a battle, uh, you can't just take their guns and say, thanks, have a nice day, uh, go home. Uh, They'll just get more guns and start shooting at you again. Uh, You've got to be able to detain them in order to prevent them from returning to the battlefield. But that's only half of the equation, because there is the risk of accidental detention indefinitely, uh, because we don't know uh, how long the war on terror might go on, Uh, Because you're fighting non-state actors, it's more amorphous. The goals can shift against new organizations. Uh, So we don't know how long detention can run. Uh, I I asked my students uh, when we did this case, and completely honestly, I asked them if the war on terror is still going on, uh, because I'm not quite sure myself, uh, and they didn't seem to know either. Uh, But O'Connor has a real point. Uh, I still have terrible nightmares. (laughs) O'Connor has a real point here. Uh, Hamdi could be locked up forever. Uh, So you've got to give him some due process before a neutral decision maker 
Uh, now, that can be tailored to the military setting. Uh, it can be before a military tribunal. Uh, hearsay can be admitted as evidence. Uh, but there has to be a reasonable chance to rebut the accusations against him. Uh, now, I'll admit part yeah, it, of, Go ahead. No, I, 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 said, I was just going to say in that way, I mean, because it seems to me that the danger of judges deciding these questions is actually the opposite of what someone might think. That is... I think the danger of deci judges deciding these questions is Korematsu more than it is um, over use of, of judicial power. In other words, when judges think they're going to decide military questions, they're often just going to defer to the executive, which is what they did in Korematsu. Um, they just deferred to the executive. So in a way, Connor O'Connor's interesting in your reading because she's not simply doing that. She's trying to find some line that she can create. I just wonder... I mean, I, I, doesn't Congress do that better than Supreme Court justices? Yeah, I see. You just I don't see like the, Congress, yeah, you, then. I would like to maybe get into the source of this animosity to Congress. It's not, it's not, you really it's don't not like, like you're being paid by an administration, you know? This is purely scholarly. And isn't, I mean, isn't, I, I mean, like, I actually just would be interested in hearing your thoughts on the role of Congress in the Republic generally, because your view of American political life in a way to me, I mean, it seems for us to have a, a distinctly Republican way of life, Congress has to play a central role. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is the legislative branch. It is the lawmaking branch. Uh, and I think it would certainly be, be terrible. And there, there's been cases this happened, it's, uh, but it would be terrible for the executive to actually usurp the legislative function or the judiciary to usurp the legislative function and rewrite the law. Uh, but partly, uh, and why I think this comes out with the war on terror, part of the equation is just a lot of these aren't legislative functions. Uh, when we're talking about detaining enemy combatants and prosecuting a war, uh, the prosecution of the war is executive. And then the detention process is partially executive, partially judicial. Uh, so that is a tough call because Congress does write some laws uh, cooperating with the Bush administration that try to take the courts out of it. And then the courts basically say no. And you can read the later cases, Hamden v. Rumsfeld, uh, Bermidian v. Bush, in a sort of laughable way, where basically the way Scalia reads it in his dissents is that Congress keeps trying to respond to the court, and then the court just keeps pulling like new imaginary uh, aces out of their sleeves and says, wait a second, here's actually what we meant. Uh, that's a plausible reading. Uh, but I think more of the issue there, what happened, is that Congress tried totally removing the courts from the habeas corpus process for detainees. And the court's point, uh, Justice Kennedy uh, brings this up in Bumidian, uh, another underrated justice, I think. Uh, Kennedy argues there that there's something inherently judicial uh, that Congress can't just remove the courts because otherwise the executive gets to be judge, jury, and executioner when it comes to detainees. There has to be judicial process. Uh, but generally, that's not to say that Congress can't write the law. Uh, Congress has a whole host of areas they have to regulate. Uh, international commerce and commerce among the several states, uh, naturalization laws. A big part of the problem, though, uh, that we've got to keep in mind in uh, the late 20th century and beyond is that Congress has written a whole lot of laws that say basically 
the president can do what he wants. Uh, he can do what he wants in this case. Uh, the one that comes to mind, uh, because I just taught the uh, Trump v. Hawaii case, uh, the, the travel ban case. And uh, a lot of students want to be very critical of the case, understandably so, uh, that Donald Trump as candidate had been calling for a Muslim ban. Uh, and then as president, he implements a travel ban that on its face, on its face is neutral. It doesn't say anything about religion. Uh, but to a lot of people, it looks like him trying to enact discrimination uh, based on religion. Uh, but the big problem in that case, why I think the court ultimately doesn't strike down the ban, is that Congress wrote this Immigration and Nationality Act in the 1950s uh, that says the president can exclude individuals from entering the country whenever he thinks necessary for the national interest, which is basically the broadest possible delegation you can think of. And there's arguments on both sides. Maybe the president does have to be the one to make that judgment call. But also Congress does have the power over naturalization. And in that law, Congress basically said, we're going to punt that power to the president whenever he thinks he needs to take that power over. Uh, so there's also a delegation question here, too. Well, I'd like to maybe. So I want to come back to. Oh, Oh, no, I, can I just yeah, quick yeah, come ahead. back to the Boumedian? Yeah. Um, how do you pronounce it? it I, 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 I say Boumedian. I don't know what's right there. I, I've been saying Boumedian forever, so I'm just going to stick with it, even if it's wrong. Um, <laughs> the, the, um, I, by the way, I was really liked, you know, you like Lincoln and then Kennedy, <laughs> underrated justice. Did you really mean to say that Kennedy is an underrated yeah. justice? Again, I'm on separation of powers, I think he's quite excellent. Uh, so I'll, that this, decision, Boumediene, is is the worst decision. It's terrible. It's a terrible decision. <laughs> I think I think it's an excellent. And decision. in it, you know what's really interesting about that decision? You said Congress makes law. In it, Kennedy almost accidentally says essentially that the court makes law. I mean, he he uses he cites Marbury v. Madison, and he cites it in such a way that it sounds like they're making the law. Not that they follow the law or that they have to use the law to make, but that they're literally making the law, which is, you know, the ultimate supremacist position. That yeah, they, I don't read it that. that. I, think he, I think he's saying more Congress can't take the courts out of a judicial function and overseeing detentions. Well, but why wouldn't they be able to? Why wouldn't Congress be able to take? I mean, in other words, one, and one of the problems, too, with, with the – Boumediene decision is it's not clear. Congress had created a process for dealing with detentions and Kennedy just punts the process and it's not clear what comes in, in its place. It's just like, well, you can't do it, but what comes in its place? I don't know. They just like circuit cut, cut lower court judges have to make up things on their own after the, after the Boumediene decision. Yes. Yeah, so, Congress, Congress can obviously uh, alter the jurisdiction of the court. Uh, Article 3 of the Constitution gives Congress that power. The issue there yeah. in Midian, though, is Congress altered the habeas corpus jurisdiction uh, by taking it away from most federal courts, uh, but they didn't establish an acceptable alternative. Uh, so Kennedy's argument is, yes, you can take away habeas jurisdiction, but you have to provide some acceptable alternative so that the rights of detainees are still provided for. The issue How do they provide 
isn't that's isn't Robert's descent in that in that in Boomerang that they did provide it? We just haven't seen it put be put in action because the Supreme Court wants to jump in. I thought that was the yeah. I mean, Roberts thinks it's the most generous possible set of protections you can give, and that it's sufficient. Uh, but I think Kennedy's response to that is that it puts the power unilaterally in the executive. It collapses it all within one branch. And so the executive essentially gets to decide whether to detain the individual and whether to continue to hold them. And so it's ultimately the executive running the military commissions, deciding what evidence is admitted, uh, not necessarily giving them full legal counsel. They have a personal representative, but not a legal counsel, uh, allowing lower standards for evidence that don't provide enough checks on the process. So it's not a judicial process because it's not the judicial process Kennedy wants? I mean, in other words, Kennedy's argument is that you didn't give a judicial process instead of the judicial, but it's just, no, you didn't give my judicial process instead of, you know, I mean, in other words, it's not that Congress didn't provide for a judicial process. It's just that they didn't provide for the judicial process Kennedy desires. And it's not clear to me why Kennedy should decide that question. Yeah, from Kennedy's perspective, it's ultimately the court has to decide a judicial question here, that the whole judicial branch and the functioning of the judicial power is vested in the Supreme Court. And so that's why the court has a right to intervene. And that's why I think the court is most hands-on in detention cases, uh, because that is where the court has the most power against the executive and against Congress, too. And whereas we're purely executive or purely legislative issues. The court is most deferential. All right. Shane, yeah, I think Shane, Shane you had a yeah, question. Well, maybe, ben and I will geek out on this forever. So. Yeah, maybe to get out of the weeds a little bit, um, <laughs> although this is fascinating. So, I mean, you want to, I think, like like uh, paint a very narrow picture of Cong- Congress's role as, as purely legislative. I guess I, I wonder if there's also another role Congress plays, which is a, a deliberative element in American political life, and that that's actually quite important to ensure that the the people, even if it's through their represent their representatives, have a more direct uh, you know role in deliberation, especially about grave matters. I mean, it seems to me that deciding to go to war is not necessarily uh, it's it's it differs from maybe normal legislative capacity as we were under, understand it. It's it's a more it's a grander sort of uh, need for deliberation in which we would want to call the people in, and that would be more um, Republican, I think, in some way. So uh, I guess I'd, I'm interested what you think of that. And and also in that vein, I mean, I think, you know, we if we're going to talk about war powers and things like this, and you already brought it up in terms of Congress's tendency to delegate authority, we might want to talk about, or I might want to hear your thoughts on the uh, war powers resolution and and maybe just broadly ask the question, and I'd like to get maybe later down the line your kind of assessment of where we are today constitutionally. But um, to, is this okay that Congress is just passing away powers to the executive, and, and particularly yeah, can, in the case of war? You know, can I make a broader point first, and then I'll get to oh, the war powers? Oh, please do, thing. yeah. Uh, but I have an answer. I think you're really going to hate Shane. Oh, I love uh, it <laughs> on, deliber- on the deliberation question. Uh, so I think in some ways Congress does deliberate, uh, and I think. So if we're thinking broad, broader than just normal constitutionalism, but also American political thought, sort of the, not just the role in applying the Constitution, but 
understanding the nation, shaping the national discourse, speaking for the nation. Yeah. I think actually the president does that more, and the Constitution sets up the president more than Congress. The problem with Congress is every individual member represents a particular district within a state. And if they're in the Senate or a House member in a really small state, they represent a state. Uh, But at most, a member of Congress speaks for that state and that state's interests. And so when members of Congress deliberate, uh, they're only deliberating and acting on behalf of their particular constituency. The only national officer who's elected through the whole nation, through a national election, is the president. Uh, so I don't know if any of your episodes yet have touched upon sort of the rhetorical presidency theory and sort of critiques of the president uh, gaining more rhetorical power over time. I'm sort of of the David Nichols school, naturally, David Nichols being my teacher, that the rhetorical presidency is right there in the Constitution, uh, that he's the only national officer elected to speak on behalf of the whole nation. Uh, and that I think the State of the Union Clause is really important. Uh, he shall inform Congress from time to time on the State of the Union, I think helps envision him in some ways as this national uh, representative who speaks to the whole nation. So I would argue uh, that, I mean, sure, reading congressional speeches is great. I've taught congressional speeches. They can be helpful. But in some ways, I would argue presidential speeches are more useful for understanding where the nation is at any given moment. I know, not helping my case on hating Congress, but <laughs> I just had to add that in there. Yeah, no, that was great. <laughs> so, so, Ben, really, we should just get rid of Congress, have a president and a Supreme Court. We should have the octogenarians battle it out. You know? <laughs> um. <laughs> now, yeah, because get, getting rid of Congress would lower the age of the national government so much. Uh, only, <laughs> only slightly, I think. Uh, but uh, to Shane's question, and where does Congress have a role in war patterns? Uh, Maybe this is maybe a big part of my gripe against Congress is that part of my problem is Congress hasn't done the job it's supposed to do well. Yeah, I think in some ways there was anticipation of this in the founding. Uh, The the Federalist really is worried about Congress as the most dangerous branch of government, the impetuous vortex. Uh, It sounds laughable to us, but the real threat was Congress was the most dangerous. And there's a legitimate question. Maybe the founders weakened Congress so much uh, to prevent it from being dangerous that maybe it hurt Congress. I'm open to that argument. Uh, But part of the – I think there's anticipation even from the beginning that given the nature of a legislative body, given the factionalism we will see in Congress – a lot of what we might have might look like gridlock and Congress not doing its job. Uh, I read Federalist 10 on factions and factions checking each other and the extended republic as actually an argument that gridlock some of the time isn't the worst thing in the world. Uh, so it's not even a bad thing. It's just we maybe have to lower the expectations for Congress. Uh, but part of the problem is even when Congress is supposed to be doing its job, uh, it doesn't do it. And so war is a good one, as Shane rightly brings up. Congress does have the power to declare war. Uh, Now, we have not declared a war since World War II. But that's not because the president's just been sending us into war completely by himself and ignoring Congress. 
Uh, even Korea. Uh, there's a really good article. Uh, I forget who it's by. Uh, Robert Turner, possibly, I think. Uh, so the Korean War is typically the stock example mm -hmm. that Harry Truman uses the United Nations and a, a mandate from the U.N. to get us into the Korean War uh, and not going to Congress. Uh, but I think it's Turner has this article where actually Truman went to congressional leadership first and asked them about a declaration of war. And they told him to not come to Congress so they didn't have to take the blame. <laughs> Uh, so part of the problem is I think Congress would rather punt to the president. Yeah. So they don't have to take the blame for war. Uh, so, no, we did not declare war in Vietnam and we didn't declare it in the Gulf War or the Iraq or the Afghanistan wars. Instead, we authorized the use of military force. Uh, Congress passed these ops, authorizations for the use of military force. And then somehow with a straight face, they can say plausibly, we didn't declare war. We just authorized the president to use military force, as if those aren't the same exact things. Don't you think, in a way, though, I mean, the problem is, is that the Constitution, by clarifying that Congress has to declare war, it prevents Congress from letting itself get off the hook. In other words, Congress likes this powerful president as much as the president likes the powerful president. So, you know, the post-World War II president that goes to war in all these places, I don't think members of Congress, except if they're of the opposite party and if it becomes politically popular to oppose such such presidents, then, then they might. But members of Congress generally don't oppose it. But I wonder if that's why the Constitution tries to make it clear so that Congress can't let itself off the hook. You know, in other words, like, I don't know, actually this gets to the judicial question. Should judges, in your in your world, do judges declare wars unconstitutional? No. Uh, so, and remind me, Shane, before I forget, I definitely want to bring in the WPR at some point, the War Powers Resolution. Mm -hmm. uh, but let me get to Ben's question first. Uh, no, so this actually comes up uh, in the 1970s. Uh, so there, it's a there's two different cases: uh, Holtzman v. Schlesinger, then Schlesinger v. Holtzman. I forget the order of the cases. Uh, but in so in the 1970s, wait, there are two cases. One's called Holtzman v. Schlesinger. The other one's called Schles no. Or there's one case that's it's one of those. It's technically two different cases. Oh, with the same two, four names. Yeah, it's just they're, the appellant switches, so the party switches. <laughs> oh, okay. I see. Uh, <laughs> so uh, this is part of the long, the like, the years-long withdrawal from Vietnam, the Vietnam War withdrawal that never ends, where suddenly we escalate the war, and then the Nixon administration starts bombing Cambodia. Uh, Elizabeth Holtzman was a congresswoman from New York. Uh, she sued in federal court. Uh, to argue that the bombing of Cambodia was unconstitutional because it was unauthorized by Congress. Uh, it went, uh, the court was in recess, so it went to Thurgood Marshall, uh, who, the, this gets more into the inside baseball stuff, but each Supreme Court justice sits uh, in charge of one of the federal circuit courts. So Thurgood Marshall was the justice uh, in charge of that circuit court that Holtzman had appealed to. Uh, so Marshall uh, dismisses the case. Marshall says, basically, this isn't a judicial question. It goes beyond the judicial capacity to declare a war unconstitutional. So for 
Thurgood Marshall here, there's a clear line that would be too much for the Supreme Court to say the president can't bomb Cambodia, that it goes beyond a judicial function to second guess the president as commander in chief, and that this is really a political question to be sorted out uh, between the president and Congress. Okay, but why are there two different cases? Holtzman appeals again to Justice William Douglas, who had no business deciding the case because he was not in charge of that circuit. Uh, and Douglas unilaterally by himself says the bombing of Cambodia is unconstitutional. Uh, but actually be, not because he mentions Congress's powers being usurped, but he actually makes it an Eighth Amendment death penalty case. Uh, that, yeah, it's a cruel and unusual punishment case uh, because it's a, because it's an injunction. And so servicemen and Cambodian crazy. servicemen and Cambodian peasants will die if the bombing continues. Uh, and so then the Supreme Court by emergency conference call uh, gets together uh, eight to one. Uh, with Marshall writing the opinion, they overrule Douglas. They don't even say why. They just say, basically, overrule. Uh, we're going back to Marshall's decision. Uh, and Douglas has a legitimate point in his dissent in that case, actually. Uh, he brings up how the telephone conference might have been illegal under the law at the time because they didn't meet in person. Uh, but I'm not that sympathetic because it's a situation he caused uh, – by unilaterally declaring a war unconstitutional. Yeah. Uh, although, I mean, if we stick to the question of if the ju if the judiciary's role is to decide on rights, then couldn't you make an, an argument that the, the rights of those people being killed has been has been violated? I mean, just like Razul makes that argument that the Supreme Court didn't decide on the rights of non-citizens in other parts of the world. What, what, what's so crazy about saying it? Yeah, well, no case. one really framed it as a rights question except for Douglas. Uh, I think really uh -huh. to, to Marshall's point, it's not that the rights question isn't there, uh, but it's subordinate. And really the main question in the case is executive power versus legislative power. And I think for Marshall, the issue is there isn't a clear judicial question to get involved. It's not a detention mm -hmm. case. It's a case where the question is actually war policy and military strategy over what to do in a war. And for Marshall, that would be the courts taking on a function they don't have uh, when it's clearly legislative and executive there. And those two branches need to work it out. But do you think the court did that then in the Razul case? No, because it's a detention case. Uh, and... There were deals. So we should have just killed people. The I mean, real problem I, the Bush administration did was to let them live. I mean, I think you brought this up, uh, I think, at a conference that uh, the reason there's no cases in the Obama administration is that they use drone warfare. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it's true. It's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it's, kill them. You don't have judicial processes once they're dead. <laughs> I mean, it is true, though, that if we're talking about actual killing of enemy forces in combat that's not a judicial question that's pretty clearly the commander-in-chief's power to wage war against the enemy but once you detain them you are creating a judicial question 
<laughs> Interesting counterfactual, though, that that's the way it works <laughs> yeah. out. It's better to kill than to detain. I wonder if the terrorists would agree. No, uh, we, this, <laughs> this came up in my class, and some of my students, I think, uh, wanted to then make the argument that in some ways the Bush administration was actually – at least near the end, was maybe more humane in some ways than the Obama administration, the war on terror. Oh, well, uh, I think it was. Yeah, that doesn't sound like – I mean, the problem – they were just killing well, people. Well, I'm sure that – And killing people often without knowing who was – you know, there's five adult male Middle Easterners, you know, circling around outside. We should drone them. They might be terrorists. You know, yeah, there, there's absolutely no due process. Yeah. No, go ahead, Shane. Sorry. Oh no, I was just going to say. I mean, yeah, I, when you put it that, when you spell it out, it's clearly one is more humane than the other. Um, but for the average <laughs> undergraduate who probably has, you know, some real dispositions towards Obama, they don't have towards uh, Bush. That probably is quite shocking to come to that conclusion, especially <laughs> in a sort of Socratic fashion. You know, so <laughs> I would have loved to have been in that room, Ben. Um, well. This has been an incredible discussion. Uh, we are kind of going over time here. I mean, Ben, I mean, I hope maybe we can have you on another time because it seems like we just found a ton of threads that I'd like to pull on more. But um, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I want to hear why stories better than Marshall. We have to have you on just to find that out. Oh, do you want me to say <laughs> yeah, something about War Powers a, Resolution, though? Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Tell us about the War Powers Resolution. Yeah, oh, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah, since we sort of got away from that threat. Yeah. Um, but – uh, so the big thing with Congress, where Congress has its clearest constitutional power, is the power of the purse, uh, even more than declaring war. Uh, there's actually – I would argue there's some ambiguity even at the founding, uh, just how much the declaration of war power – uh, just how much that's supposed to mean for Congress. Are you going to give me the John you – I'm declaring that legally we're in a war now. It's a matter of international law. I have a lot of complaints about John Yu's positions, but I think that's one of his stronger arguments, okay. actually. That's but, the dumbest argument ever. <laughs> that's one of his dumbest arguments. I think there's some logic to it. But to the point, though, uh, Congress's clearest power over the military and really over everything is the power of the purse. Money comes from Congress. Nothing can be done without Congress appropriating funding for it. The military cannot do anything without funds from Congress. And so if Congress really wants to control what the president can do with the military, just pull the funding, which is why the War Powers Resolution was such an abhorrent law. Instead of using its clearest, most constitutional power to restrain the executive and to restrain potential abuses of war powers, instead of just cutting the funding from the military, Congress passed this really intricate, complicated, symbolic legislation uh, that's set up to almost not work in some ways. Uh, we, I won't get into it here, but the War Powers Resolution is incredibly convoluted. Even some of its original sponsors end up criticizing the final bill because they think it gives the president too much power uh, for 60 days uh, to wage war, actually. Uh, it's a compromised bill that no one's happy with, which sometimes can be actually a sign of good legislation. Uh, but in this case, it was just designed not to work, uh, and it raised too many constitutional questions. Uh, when actually the easiest, clearest check Congress has is pulling the money. Uh, but it doesn't want to do that because 
then it looks like you're not supporting well, the military. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just... it, it could hurt the military and it could cost them re-election. Yeah, I'm just picturing a congressman going up for election after the president came out and said, you know, hey, sorry, uh, you know, we have the we drop these guys off in the Middle East and we can't give them food or <laughs> bullets. Well, <laughs> Congress isn't funding them anymore. <laughs> Congress, like the... a headline, you know, Congress leaves troops stranded. In... <laughs> Congress actually did – there's one time they did do something like this, though, finally at the end of Vietnam to Ford. Mm. Uh, they finally cut the funding to Ford and told him basically to get the troops out without money, and he had to do some creative accounting as far as I know. <laughs> uh, but that took years yeah, of the Vietnam yeah, certainly. Well, and you could at the very least, I mean, I think you're right. There's a way, that is the power they have in the situation. There's a way to threaten that. And and there's a way, honestly, I mean, I, I, I think in some ways I'm sympathetic to the difficult situation, uh, you know, congressional representatives might find themselves in, in terms of, you know, uh, just sort of trying to exercise their power against a president in, in difficult circumstances and being enmeshed in in certain you know rhetorical forces and things like that and, and electoral concerns but but in another sense it's like the, the the they're fairly lazy in terms of trying to explain their role to the american people and there is a sense that they could make joint statements and they could do things they, they could they, you know they could do press conferences and speeches to to try to say like I'm doing something controversial here for a very good reason. Um, and that might be something, you know, that they're incapable of today. I don't know. I also think, I mean, it's worth saying too, that, you know, this, this came up, I think on a prior podcast, that that is the extent to which Congress did intentionally create a situation after world war two, where presidents would have a lot more authority in foreign policy yeah. than, and could take, our country to limited kinds of wars on their own authority. So the the excesses of the presidency post-World War II, the, the imperial presidency, as, as Schlesinger calls it, um, is in a way a creation of Congress. You know, the, this – and so – Contra Lou Fisher, I feel like in every podcast I should say something bad about Lou Fisher. So. Um, <laughs> Contra Lou Fisher, the president isn't just abusing power. Um, the question is, though, I, I mean, that the you position on the declaration of war, uh, which you said you like, Ben, it, it just, if that's true, why did neither Madison nor Hamilton think that in the Pacificus Helvidius debates? In fact, Madison says it's like a ridiculous position that the president could take us to war on his own. And that that Hamilton's position, which is much more minor, if we take that seriously, we'll soon get to that that later position. And Hamilton doesn't come back and say, you know what, we're already there. We already have that power. So it just it strikes me that no one said that at the founding. So it's an odd position to Yeah, although uh so Yeah, I do I should say that I don't fully agree with his position. I think there's some logic to it. I'm more, and this is hinging a lot on one thing, and sort of Hamilton doesn't bring it up later, but he does make a comment in Federalist 25, I think it is. He makes an offhand comment about how declarations of war are going out of use, and no one uses them anymore. Uh, so it seems to indicate that Hamilton thought it wasn't going to mean all that much. Uh, but I think sort of the bigger point that John U. misses and why – I myself wouldn't put a whole lot of weights on the declaration of war is that I don't think it's actually Congress's biggest war power. I think it's the power of the purse. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think ultimately, if you stress the declaration of war so much, that misses the fact that Congress's job is really providing the money and maybe taking the money away if it wants to. Yeah, so either way, you, you mm, it's intended that, that you need Congress on board for the war, whether or not it's declared. No. Well, that, I think that's a great place yeah. to end. Um, ben, thanks so much for coming on. This was uh, this was a great conversation. The sparks always fly when you're in the room. So I really appreciate it. Well, thanks it. for yeah, having me. Thank Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Constitutionalist. If you have a moment, please rate and review this episode on whatever platform you're listening on. And be sure to check out our written publications and blog at theconstitutionalist.org. And from myself and Professor Kleinerman, we'd like to offer a special thanks to the Jack Miller Center, whose generous funding makes this podcast and The Constitutionalist itself possible. See you next week.